the positive results that we're seeing on these three vaccines for COVID-19 has, I think, everybody on the planet excited and seeing the light at the end of the tunnel of this pandemic. Hopefully, hopefully, our lives will be able to return to some normalcy sometime in the near future as a result. Now, here's the thing. As with any new vaccine and having them developed so quickly, there are many questions surrounding safety, efficacy, and frankly, who should get them first? Let's answer those questions right now. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator podcast. Don't forget, please rate and review us. It's so important because that's how we get more people to hear this information and get their own lives healthier. Hi there. Um, welcome. We're talking on a Tuesday afternoon because there's a lot of news going on about vaccines. Much to everybody's delight, a little bit of surprise. Max, we're going to talk in a minute. I think Max and I are both going to be surprised a little bit. Um, there's huge and exciting news going on for vaccines that there may actually be a light to the end of this tunnel. Um, but more questions, tons of questions about what's the effectiveness because there's all these different ones. We all know more information than anyone has ever known about any drug vaccine or anything else. So let's get those answers to your questions so that you know with confidence that actually there's some great things going on and that we have a, a light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm Sarah Heiner. Welcome today um, to our bottom line health and happiness show. We used to be called The Advocator, but I changed the name. Health and happiness felt so much better. A um, couple little things as always. Um, if you if you miss some of this or you want to share this when you're done, come to, there's a whole video library of these in the bottom line Facebook page. If it's easier for you, we also have a growing library of videos in our YouTube channel, Bottom Line Inc. YouTube channel. Um, easy to come to. We have some, some snippets. We have hundreds actually that I've been doing over the years. So you can come on there and share those with people. Um, if you have any questions today about vaccines, put them into the chat box. We're going to try and answer as many as we can. I know there's a ton of them. My husband actually before this was giving me his questions and I said, I got that one. I got that one. Um, so, but put them in the chat box and someone will, will forward those along to me. Um, this Thursday, actually, normally I do these Facebook Lives on Thursday. Happy Thanksgiving. Please go enjoy yourselves. Stay safe. Enjoy your family. Give your family a hug. Hugs are important as well. And there's a lot to be grateful for, even in the midst of this pandemic. There are a lot of silver linings that a lot of people have talked about, including time at home, time to enjoy your family in a way that you haven't been able to in a long time. So be grateful for what we do have, please. And one more thing. No one can beat this if your body isn't strong. I've talked about this repeatedly, repeatedly. It's really important to have a strong immune system that if you can't, you can't pass along a germ if you don't get sick and you reduce the odds of getting sick if you have a strong immune system. So we actually bottom line put together a download of great information from some of our top experts about ways to, to strengthen your immune system. So download, download that, it's totally free. There's a link in the chat box. I just want everybody strong and healthy. There's, you know, the doctors aren't talking about it. The media isn't talking about all the things you can do to prevent it. There's a lot you can do for prevention beyond simply masks and social distancing. So could, can't say anything more important about that. And with that, let me bring on Dr. Max Gomez, my good friend. Um, and he, I will get, tell you all about him, but I always am so grateful. He's one of the smartest people that I know. Um, welcome, Max. Let me introduce you to everybody. Hi, Sarah. Um, anyone who doesn't recognize the one and only Dr. Max Gomez, he is, I love saying this, the nine-time Emmy Award-winning medical journalist who's known and loved by New Yorkers for decades. Um, you can see him on CBS News in the evenings. 
with his great and very important medical reports. Um, he has received an excellence in a time of crisis award from the New York City Department of Health for his coverage following 9-11 attacks. Um, very deep, near and dear to his heart is the work that he's done on stem cell research. He was the moderator of the fourth international Vatican conference called Unite to Cure, how science, technology, and 21st century medicine will impact culture and society. Um, and that's something that has been a huge accomplishment for Max and really proud of the work that he's done with that. Um, and as I said, he's one of the smartest people that I know, and he just always knows the answer to everything. Um, you can follow Max, learn more about Max at drmaxgomez.com. So hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi. Um, so when you and I last talked in May about what was going on with all of this stuff, um, you and I both were a little skeptical about vaccines. We talked a lot about treatments. We talked a lot about, we talked about prevention treatments as that was going to be phase one because the odds of getting a vaccine are usually pretty slim, certainly in a speedy amount of time. And yet, meanwhile, here we are with three vaccines that have passed phase three trial and looking extremely encouraging. Are you surprised? Uh, I am. Uh, thank you for pointing that out. Um, I am. I am surprised. I'm pleasantly surprised. Look, um, you know, I, I truly, truly hope that this will be the end of the pandemic. Uh, but as uh, an expert I uh, interviewed from from Yale uh, just last week said, it's the end of the beginning. How so? Which, the the issues now confronting us, we've now tested it in um, in the case of, let's see, Pfizer was around 40 some odd thousand. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Moderna was in that same neighborhood. Um, and- uh, AstraZeneca somewhere, they're all about the same 30 to 60. Yeah, they're, they're actually kind of in fits and starts with kind of slightly different chunks being done in different countries. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I think they're going to be a total of up to maybe 60,000 mm -hmm. uh, people there. Anyway, um, the end of the beginning is the science part and testing it, doing these now phase three clinical trials. Now comes a, a part that is in some ways almost as challenging is distribution. Okay. Distribution and administration. How do you get these things out to billions of people we're not we're not talking about you know that relatively small handful of people that we get flu shots to um, over a period of you know almost an entire winter right this is worldwide um, the the supply chain is difficult uh, the supplies uh, the administration the storage and so forth we'll get into that Yep. Uh, in into some detail, but and the ethics, frankly, which that's, that's another very big, uh, another very big issue. So right. I'm I'm pleasantly surprised um, and and glad to, to be such. I'll, you know, we'll 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 still see. I was only off maybe by oh or maybe a month at most. I think here because I said it wasn't wasn't going to happen this year. <laughs> I think so I wasn't sure it was going to happen this decade because normally, yeah. I mean, this is really important for people to realize. This truly was warp speed. I mean, it takes 10 to 15 years for vaccines to normally be developed, thoroughly it's, tested. It's a huge, huge scientific accomplishment, yeah. especially given that uh, there are multiple platforms, if you will, mm -hmm. that these uh, vaccines and some of them completely 
uh, novel yeah. ones that have not been used in, in, in vaccines, certainly not on a large scale before. So it's, it's a huge scientific accomplishment, okay. um, you know, but there's, there's work left to be done here. There is. All right. So let's talk about that because question number one is wanting to understand these. It's so, you know, it's so funny because people just go and get vaccines. Like never have people paid attention at the level and gotten the information that they're getting about every detail. I have no idea how the mumps vaccine was produced, right? No one has any idea. And now we're going to talk about some pretty heavy science. Sorry, crowd. You've got to get you know, biology 101 here um, because you know, the, it's just so on everybody's minds. So let's talk about first the technology. So these two different platforms, because we've got the two on a similar platform, we've got Pfizer and Moderna, and then the AstraZeneca, which is a different platform. Let's do, even though AstraZeneca is the one that most recently, you know, posted its numbers, let's talk about that first, because that's, I'll call it the traditional um, vaccine platform. Kind of. Um, well, in terms was, of what's it called, viral vector vaccines, where they right, take the virus right. and they adapt it. Right. So um, I hope I get all of the details uh, correct here. But uh, this was actually a platform that um, uh, the University of Oxford in England had been working on for Ebola uh, and some other uh, diseases before that didn't go very far because, again, um, it, it didn't seem to be, uh, it wasn't as big a deal in the sense that these, these uh, epidemics kind of tended to burn out. And quite frankly, the market wasn't huge. So there wasn't uh, the, uh, the kind of money that was being thrown at, uh, at these, uh, at, at these um, COVID vaccines. So it's based on a monkey virus. And it's not, it's, it's standard when they do these vac traditional vaccines that they get a virus from another species. Like it sounds creepy. I'm going to get a chimpanzee virus into me, but that's right. standard procedure. They get virus. a virus and then they alter it basically. Yes. It's, it's an adenovirus it's called, and it's been, it's had its genetics kind of disabled in a sense so that it can't reproduce. These viral vectors are really very much very common in terms of delivering uh, gene therapies and, and vaccines. This, this is a very common uh, technology right. um, because viruses are really, really good at delivering genetic material into cells. That's kind of, that's what they do right. is they work their way into their, they're able to be uh, attached and then be taken into a cell and inside the cell, the virus and takes over the uh, manufacturing, the protein manufacturing machinery of a cell. So in this case, this is a chimp uh, adenovirus that's been disabled. It's been genetically modified, so it can't, it's had a chunk taken out of uh, its uh, uh, its genetic material so, so that it can't replicate. Right. right. So what, and then the other thing that they've done with it is they've inserted a the, the gene or a gene, some genetic material that will cause it to reproduce some of the uh, proteins, particularly the uh, spike proteins of the coronavirus. Could you say what a define what a spike protein is? Just yeah. It's a word that's thrown around and, you know, I keep picturing that, you know, a, a, a thing sticking off of a virus, but I don't think- We've all seen, it. we've all seen pictures mm -hmm. of the virus, right? It's kind of a round ball with all these little red 
balls or spikes sticking right. out of it. Which is what locks in when it when it attaches right. to the cells. That's where its name comes from too, right. by the way. It looks like a crown. It's a corona mm -hmm. uh, and that's what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And those are the little spikes that it uses to actually attach to the surface of human cells, specific receptors on the human cells. As it turns out, they are receptors that are very common in the nasal passages, in the throat, in the linings of the lungs, which is why initially it was thought to be just uh, a respiratory virus. It turns out those same receptors are uh, highly present in the linings of blood vessels, which is why one of the other uh, effects of the coronavirus is this hypercoagulability, meaning right. we produce a lot of blood clots, those little, some microscopic, some very large, and that's why we get uh, strokes, heart attacks, kidney damage, right. liver damage, because these little clots have, have now formed everywhere. But anyway, back to the, back to the chimp vaccine, <laughs> the chimp virus. But we digress. So, so this virus is um, kind of a Trojan horse. Mm -hmm. It's a delivery vehicle. Right. And it's got the, the genetics that a little piece of the genetics of the coronavirus, it gets into the cell, it releases this, it's taken into the nucleus of the cell where now it will reproduce or it, it, it's become the, the DNA then be, gets transcribed to RNA and, and gets spit out in the rest of the cell where these little ribosomes the little actual factories that then will read this genetic material and make some of this spike protein. Okay. That spike protein then gets released into the system, into the body, where now the immune system will see it, recognize it as something that doesn't belong there and make antibodies to it. So how come this is when we just said that it normally takes 10 or 15 years for a vaccine to be produced. This is, I'll call it traditional vaccine manufacture. How are they able to do it so quickly? Was it because of the similarity to Ebola? Not so much the similarities to Ebola, the virus, but it was the same, uh, a similar technique. Um, we've developed the ways to um, CRISPR is one of the ways of, in terms of editing the mm -hmm. genome in the virus, so that we know we can go in there, clip out a chunk of the clip out of a chunk of the genetics of the virus, so that it can't replicate. And another system or technique, genetic engineering technique, essentially that can insert the viral uh, genome, a piece right. of uh, the piece of the coronavirus, into this chimpanzee adenovirus. Does that okay. make sense so far? It does. So they, they basically ad adapt. They, they were able to they have new technology that helps them speed up that traditional right. technology. And, you if know, I can oversimplify. Right. So again, but a, a lot of what has allowed it to really uh, accelerate is money. Yeah. Um, because in uh, two things, actually. One is, one is money so that these clinical trials and the science and the manufacturing and so forth can then be accelerated because uh, they know that if they are successful, there will be a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Right. The other thing that has uh, accelerated it, which was something that uh, when we spoke before, I hadn't 
really considered necessarily, but this uh, occurred to me. The way these clinical trials are, are done, let's say you, you're doing 50,000 people out there. Mm -hmm. You give 25,000 people the vaccine and 25,000 people a placebo. Mm -hmm. These are normal, uninfected, healthy people. Right. And now you turn them loose, live their life, follow whatever you know procedures they are, and then you wait to see how many got infected in each group. Right. The fact that there is, that infection is so rampant. Oh, so they can accelerate. Accelerates it right. because they are the the people who are either vaccinated or got the got the placebo. That many more people are going to be exposed, community spread of the virus. So, in 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 a sense, the fact that it is so rampant is the, if you can call it a silver lining, uh, what helped accelerate uh, the results from a 30 or 40 or 50, 60,000 person uh, clinical trial. And so when they test these vaccines, they don't give them the vaccine and then intentionally expose them? to Those are called human challenge trials. And that was considered as a way to accelerate uh, the results where you would take, in this case, it would have to be young, healthy people, um, give them the vaccine, and then intentionally uh, try to infect, give them some of the right. virus to infect them, and then see how, how that worked. That clearly has some ethical uh, challenges. Small uh, detail. Okay, fine. Point taken. <laughs> involved. But also, the only people you would really try that with are young, healthy people. And so it wouldn't be clear whether the vaccine would really be protective for older folks like me um, or people of color, uh, minorities, uh, people with uh, pre-existing conditions uh, who are most at risk for you know, a really bad outcome. So it wouldn't be clear. So uh, despite the fact that you could accelerate some aspect of it, you wouldn't really have the answers that you that you really need in terms of whether this protects you in in a community setting and who it who right. it actually protects. So, so that's a, that's a really good point, though, Max. One more thing, though, about okay. the fact that mm -hmm. out of the forty thousand odd that Pfizer had in their clinical trial, the total number of infections was only I think one hundred and thirty seven. So you're not, we're not, even with all the infection that's out, all the coronavirus that's out there, we're not talking about a lot of people who actually got sick, but it was highly statistically significant because only a very, it was a small handful, and now I can't, it was less than 10 um, of those 137 were in the vaccine group. Right, Pfizer was 95% effective, I think. Right, so right. it's in the vaccine group. All the rest were in the placebo group. So you know that it looked like it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty clear that the vaccine was providing protection. So you raised a really important point, and then we're going to explain the the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. There's so many aspects of this, but this is an important point that you talked about because generally one of the complications with drugs and vaccines is this testing across different groups. Mm -hmm. and different diseases and different ages. And that, you know, very often trials are, are knocked because it hasn't tested for different segments of the population. Right. 
how much for, for all three of these, have they been able to test across the segments? Because again, the people that are getting sick are older, obese, you know, these other comorbidities. I, you know, and I want everybody to know that the, you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of people that are getting sick or seriously sick from seriously. it, seriously right. sick from it, have these other factors. Have they been able to, to include those groups, including minorities as well, which also are indexing high um, in these tests? In the case of Moderna and Pfizer, uh, they both were, and in fact, I believe Moderna uh, had to pause their uh, trial for a short while, not because of any uh, uh, safety or adverse events, but to reinforce their clinical trial site saying, we need more uh, minorities to be mm. a part of the clinical trial. Um, Pfizer was able to, uh, they say, you know, complete this across um, all sort of uh, racial, ethnic, socioeconomic right. groups. Um, the AstraZeneca one, that's less clear. Yeah. Um, whether or not they've been able, they, they really have a good representation. The, the, the results that were reported out this past week from AstraZeneca were really based on two relatively small trials so far in Brazil and the UK. Okay. Um, so that then uh, one of the criticisms that I read from uh, some of the British scientists was that it was a uh, it was a very white population that they had they yeah. had tested in, it in and so um, but presumably some of that will be accounted for. Uh, they're also testing it in well, Japan, the U.S., Russia. Brazil um, not so white. I mean, Brazil has. It depends on it depends on where you go. In, yeah. Okay. In, in Brazil, so. But that's uh, a really important factor. Again, as you know. <laughs> In a little bit, we'll talk about in terms of decision trees, in terms of getting mm -hmm. the vaccine on and how safe is it and the efficacy. And that's a critical factor in terms of the, the scale across which that it's been tested. Um, right. And let's just say also the other detail on the AstraZeneca, and then we'll talk about the other two. Um, you said that it was two smaller groups. And they, they the way they reported the numbers, they said up to 90%, but on average it was 70%. So why don't you just clarify what that meant real briefly yeah. to people? This is the perplexing part about this particular vaccine. And I've spoken to some immunologists uh, about it to try to get some explanation for it. Um, and uh, and they, didn't have a, they didn't have a good explanation for it. Um, there was one group that received one dosing schedule or regimen had a 60 plus percent effectiveness rate and a group that got a different uh, dosing regimen had um, a 90 right. plus percent. So they averaged out to what they reported out as 70% effectiveness, okay? Yeah, but you would never average it. It's really, did this did this one work or this one work? And, right. and the, so the, that double, what, the two dose, but it was like right. a was full and a half or something. What was confusing was the lower effectiveness dose, a 60% or so uh, regimen, it's two shots, full dose first, wait a couple of weeks, full dose for a second shot. The higher effectiveness was a half dose in the first shot and then a full dose. Interesting. 
from a biological mechanistic point of view, uh, the immunologists say, I don't have a good, uh, including Tony Fauci uh, said, we don't quite understand why a lower dose first and then the, the full dose booster would be that much more effective right. than the full dose twice. So that's, a, that's one of those scientific things that they're going to, you know, curiosities, if you will, that they're going to have to take a look at Got it. Um, okay. and try to understand that a little bit, a little bit better. So some questions still going on in the AstraZeneca one. Right. And that, and again, those two trials only account for, I believe it was a little over 20,000 people. Eventually they will get to 60,000 when they bring in the results from the US, Japan, Russia, there's, I think, one or two other countries. Um, 60,000 per panel or 60,000 total? 60,000 60, in total. Okay. All right. From all of the different countries. So you really have 30 with each of the different dosing? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. Let's talk about the Moderna and the Pfizer, which are entirely new technology, um, fascinating technology, and one that seems to, if this works, although they've been working on it for a while, this technology, if it does work, can revolutionize the future development of vaccines. Absolutely could. And then uh, let's not forget later to compare the sort of the pros and cons and pluses and minuses. Oh, between, yeah. Between these different vaccines. <laughs> it's so hard. I'm trying to like get all the information, watch right. the clock. So because I want to get all of it out without you and I could talk like for hours on this. But so yeah. um, it's interesting about well, oh gosh, it's probably a good four years ago or so. I spent some time uh, on the phone a couple of times uh, uh, with one of the founder and I guess he's CEO of Moderna, uh, Stefan Bonsell, um, uh, talking about, oh, he has this new platform and this idea and uh, mRNA, Moderna is sort of the, uh, you know, a cute little play on words uh, yeah. that they're using. And, it, you know, it sounded sort of like, well, that's nice, but call me when we've got something that we can actually, you know, uh, pin our hat, you know, pin our hats to, or hang our hats on. And then suddenly they became, you know, they they'd been working on this technology uh, for a while, and then suddenly it became hot when it it appeared that this was a way to accelerate uh, the production of this vaccine. So both of them use similar things. Uh, the corona virus is an RNA virus. Unlike all of the cells in our bodies, which are used DNA as their instruction manual, uh, viruses, they're called retroviruses. HIV is also a retrovirus, by the way, uh, uses its RNA. So what it has to do, it has to get into a cell and again, hijack some of the machinery to then have it transcribed into essentially all the proteins and things that make more viruses. Right. And that's how uh, it, you know, it, uh, a virus does its dirty work. It hijacks a cell, gets it to turn into a, 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 a virus making factory so that it boom, spills out right. you know, billions and billions and trillions of, of these things. So what Moderna and Pfizer have figured out is they figured out which part of the viruses genome, the RNA, the gene that codes for 
this all important spike protein that the virus uses, right, to attach to cells. Mm -hmm. They figured out, and this is the, the really ingenious part, they figured out, because mRNA is notoriously unstable. You can't just take a whole bunch of it, inject it into the body and expect it to do anything. It'll all fall apart very quickly. And why is that? Because it's fake? It's, yeah, I mean, it's, a, you know, it, it's just not, um, it's not protected in the cell, in the body. It's, you know, it's a, inside the cell, it's where it, it belongs. It's in the right environment. If you just inject it in, in, into, the, into the body, there's too much stuff going on there. It'll, be, it'll degrade. Uh, the pH may be off. Yeah, there's a lot of different reasons why it may break down. So is so this the, why, Max, they've been working on this technology for a long time, but they have yet, this like this is the first time they're actually finding success and able to, sure. to take because, sure. of, because of the sensitivity of the mRNA? Well, the, oh. the, I mean, the theory has been out there for a while. What if we could do this? Right. But the, M, they, you know, the uh, mRNA messenger, M starts mm -hmm. messenger right. RNA, because right. normally it is, that's what gets made in the nucleus of the cell from DNA. It's the messenger that gets out of the nucleus, out into the, into the rest of the cell where it makes these proteins. Um, the ingenious part is they figured out how to protect the mRNA, the part that, that they want that will make the spike protein, mm -hmm. figured out how to protect it. They micro-encapsulate it in fat, in lipid, these mm -hmm. little tiny microcapsules so that it is protected. And that's what allows it to be protected, get into the system. That's what gets injected. And also the, these little fat globules are very uh, easy or likely to incorporate or attach into the cell membrane of cells. And then it delivers the mRNA into the cell. Right? Got right. it? Yes. Now it's in there. And now that mRNA can turn into, it is now the, the code that makes the cell make more of the little, uh, maybe not the entire, but parts of the spike protein. It's just a spike protein. It's not the whole virus. So it doesn't, it's not going to do you any harm, but it's the part that the body will recognize as, as number one, foreign. And number two, it's the part that is essential for the virus to actually attach to cells. So when this gets spit out from the little cell factories that have been hijacked to turn into uh, little mini spike protein uh, factories, it gets spit out into the body. And now the body recognizes the spike protein as uh, antigenic, as something that produces an immune response, right? And it starts to make, and so the antibody cells, the antibody producing cells see it and make antibodies against it to neutralize it. That's important, but even more important than the antibodies. Antibodies come up and then normally will wane over time. So even if they are neutralizing, they're not gonna give us this long lasting immunity, which is what we need. If we get a vaccine, and it, you know, and over a period of a few months, the immunity wanes and goes away, then we really haven't accomplished all that much. It also seems to be that it, uh, the immune system now 
is able to educate itself, some of these different cells, there's presenting cells, T cells, B cells, to form what are called memory cells, T cells, that will remember what the bad guy looks like. Sort of, they have a photographic memory of the wanted poster in the, uh, you know, in the post office. Which is and, what's that, that's their job. Right, that's right. exactly their job. Right. So that if and when they come across the real virus later on, mm -hmm. it, they will both develop antibodies, but the T cells will also be the killer cells that will start going after them. And that's what provides the long lasting immunity that we get when we get um, smallpox vaccine, others, some of those things. Some, some require boosters over time, but basically that's, that's the really important part is that they make these memory T cells that will give us long lasting immunity. And do they have any evidence yet for all three of these vaccines that there will be lasting or do they still not know how long there is evidence that they make T cell, uh, that they generate T cell immunity. Okay. What we don't know is how long because it's, you know they've only been testing them for maybe right. three, four months, six right. months at most. Yeah, so we don't really know. We don't really know how long uh, uh, it'll last. Um, it's not like the flu, which we need every we need a flu vaccine every year because the flu vaccine the flu virus and virus strains mutate that quickly and become that much different that we don't have, that the T cells don't always recognize them. Um, and they don't think that this, I know they've talked about this virus mutating somewhat, like becoming less deadly, but it hasn't mutated in the way that the flu mutates. So this is a more stable virus in that regard. It, it, it had, there have been different strains. Mm -hmm. uh, they've mutated some, but they, uh, it appears that they haven't mutated enough to uh, for it to become an issue uh, that the that the vaccine uh, wouldn't work. It appears that this spike protein piece of it is so important to it that it is conserved. It's, right. That's what they need to hang on to, and that's what all of the vaccines are basically going after. So now, Max, is there any concern because what they've produced on this is? Sorry, I'm going to turn on a light here because it's getting okay, dark. Get dark. <laughs> get you. Go ahead, I'm listening. You need the giant photo spotlight that I have on me. <laughs> well, I have. Mm. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Let me also say, while you're just messing with your lights, um, that I see that there are a bunch of questions coming in. So I'm going to try to move them in, you know, bring them in as the conversation is, it, they come into the conversation. Um, so I see them, Carol, Kevin, Chuck, Carly, I see them all. Um, so that's what I'm doing. When I look down, it's not like I'm, you know, playing with my phone. Um, I'm going to call Max for the moment, and this may be a bastardization of language, but the, the um, AstraZeneca, I'm sorry, the Pfizer and the Moderna, okay, so where they've, I'll call it, they've got man-made genetic, they, 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 they found the genetic material and they man-made the RNA, right, the messenger RNA kind of, right, versus AstraZeneca where they they've taken the, the viruses that they know, they grow them in a lab then, and they, they genetically modify those in that way. Right. When they're making this man-made RNA, do we have any, you know, we talk about genetic, genetically modified food and things, you know, is there any reason to have concern that the man-made version 
isn't natural and will be introducing any kind of odd response, odd effects or anything else long-term or they have no idea. And you know, what's, do you think that's something that people should be concerned about? That was clearly a consideration mm -hmm. early on that, um, you know, what we're, we're doing, a, you know, it's a genetic based vaccine. What will, what will it do? Are there, uh, as they like to, the genetic, geneticists say off target effects here. It appears to not be an issue so far okay. that uh, they actually appear to be extraordinarily safe uh, at, at this point. That said, one of the reasons you do 30, 40, 50,000 is to try to find the tiny little effect that might get lost in the noise um, of 30 or uh, of right. just doing a, you know, a few hundred people or a couple of thousand people. Um, and there will undoubtedly be some issues that pop up because they always are, they always do. There will always, nothing will be 100%. When you start vaccinating, not just millions, but billions of people. Right. Right. All of which, uh, each of which may have their own individual biological quirks right. uh, that that might, you know, trigger some sort of an off-target effect. But the, the the piece of the genome that we're talking about is is relatively small. Uh, it's actually very small compared to you know, the rest of our chromosomes and genetic uh, materials. And you know, you can they're, they're pretty good if if it's not precisely a copy of the mRNA that the virus uses, then it won't be effective. Then it right. won't make the, the right, right respond. Okay. The, the right thing. So it, 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 in that regard, it's a it's a pretty uh, good copy. Um, will there be some effects that show up down the road? I'd uh, I'd be surprised if there weren't. But so far, none of that seems. Other than you know soreness, a little fatigue, a little malaise, just like any vaccine for a while. Other than that, so far, it's been surprisingly safe. Yeah, actually, I just wanted to say, so adverse effects, from what I read, that's exactly what I've read, that it's been a little malaise, soreness, a little bit of fever, perhaps, because your body's reacting and, and yeah, doing that's work. The right, but overall, I think, certainly on Moderna and, and uh, Pfizer, that's all that I've saw, seen reported at all. Um, I think AstraZeneca, I saw something about a little bit of an adjustment in the white cells. There was something that came up on that. Maybe, again, that, that's one of the reasons why I, I get a lot of calls from friends and families and, and strangers uh, saying, are you taking the vaccine? Right. And I said, let's, I want to see, an, I want to see all of the data, the full data set be evaluated, not just the press release from the company's mm -hmm. data set. Um, that's not to say that they're hiding anything, but, you know, the uh, the vaccine committee meets next month, early December, mm -hmm. um, and and that it that has some very serious, legitimate vaccine scientists, immunologists who I respect, right. will not rubber stamp anything. And, and there then, was years ago there was a knock on getting FDA approval for things because at least in the drug manufacturers I recall you didn't, like this happened with Vioxx, where you did not have to disclose all of your research. So it wasn't like they lied, but they didn't disclose all the research that showed with Vioxx that they had heart conditions. I think that law changed so that anything they have has now got to be 
seen. Right. Is that I mean, so there's far more transparency now than there used to be. Right. I mean, the, look, the, to to be the cynic, uh, as as some people uh, out there will be, you can always try to you know play fast and loose with the data. Yeah. You know, just because there's a law that says you shouldn't, and and we have to have it, doesn't mean that they will. That would be extraordinarily stupid. I think is the right word on the part of these companies to try to to try to pull that off uh, because eventually it'll come out and it will ruin everybody. Um, so let, let's hope nobody tries to 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 you know pull a fast one on us. How um, I'll use the word extraordinary. I don't know if that's the right word. Is it that these vaccines are getting ninety and ninety five percent effectiveness when again the flu vaccine is thirty to sixty percent? I think most of the childhood vaccines are closer to the 1995 like that these these are good numbers no these are these are fabulous numbers right. uh, i mean they are beyond most even the experts expectations mm -hmm. i think it's beyond even the company's expectations right. quite frankly um, that that they were getting this kind of protection uh, again based on you know, what are still sort of small numbers compared to what we're, what we're eventually going to be looking at. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's really pretty remarkable. Uh, again, we have to see how long it lasts and, and whether the 90 or 95% really holds up, uh, you know, when, when you start spreading it out over a much larger population. But that's, that's really, uh, the FDA had said, if it hits 50%, it would be enough to grant it at least emergency use authorization and perhaps- I was just gonna ask what, that, what their target was. The target was 50. Wow, okay. The target was 50 and they blew past that easily. Now, Max, I think I saw or heard, maybe when I was talking to Jacob Teitelbaum last week, that if you were, I wanna say zinc deficient, that you had a greater, like. If you took, if they gave you zinc before you got the the um, vaccine, that it was more effective, or am I mixing my metaphors? I might be remembering wrong, but I thought there was something that I'd seen about connecting the dots between zinc deficiency and the effectiveness of the vaccine. Run that by me again. That if you got what before which uh, yeah. zinc before you took the vaccine. If you What's got that? what. Like zinc supplementation, because zinc deficiency is so connected to COVID, and that oh, I might, yes, zinc, yeah. But I might be half remembering something in the in the haze of all my conversations. Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen any data on that directly, mm -hmm. and I, I don't know if they tease that out right. in in the in the trials. Yeah, I'm sure they were, and I'm sure they were focusing on that. You know, you've seen, we've seen all the data about D deficiency and zinc deficiency impacting somebody's um, vulnerability to sickness and serious sickness. Right. Um, so maybe they go back and look at that again as part yeah, of the comorbidities, like if you're obese. Because what I'm thinking about is, um, you know, someone asked me, um, someone, Kevin asked me a question about if you're immunocompromised, is it safe for me to get the vaccine? So. Again, healthy person, easy, relatively easy to get the vaccine. But if you're immunocompromised, if you are obese, if you do have diabetes, if you have any of these comorbidities, does it? Are you at any greater risk in getting them, or is it safe among that that crowd? 
it, it appears to be these, in fact, I've, I've, had, this, I've had this discussion for some other reasons with, with, with doctors and um, yes, immunocompromised people are um, encouraged to get the flu vaccine, for example. Uh, but, but the dead virus vaccine Right. There is the nasal spray version is an attenuated virus, right. which means it's just been weakened, mm -hmm. but it's still a live virus. That's not a good idea, but none of these are. Um, so these where it's just looking like a duck and quacking like a duck. So your body learns what a duck is right? and learns to go attack that duck when it comes in, but it's right. not without, gonna... without the duck being able to make more ducks. Right. <laughs> it's a castrated duck. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Ay, ay, ay. Yes. All right. So you want to let should we compare the, the, the vaccines? Let's talk before we get to comparing, let's talk about this whole distribution thing and, and cold right. thing. Okay. okay. So let's let's talk about that. That okay. because um, some of that is they're they're kind of inter uh, intertwined. Uh okay. Then you know, let's forget it. Let's not do the whole science. Nobody, you know, it's so funny, as I said. We all know far more about this. I have no idea how they distribute a flu vaccine, an HPV vaccine, or any other. And now we're all going to worry about refrigeration for things. So yes, let's do, okay, let's do pros and cons. I've got a few questions. We'll run those afterward. So we'll okay. just run them down, ask Dr. Max. All, all right, right so, so pros, cons, go. So uh, Moderna and Pfizer, uh, again, because uh, RNA is very labile, very unstable, mm -hmm. and even the little fat microcapsules you know, are, are kind of unstable. Yeah, you know, at room temperature, they become, you know, liquid and liquefies right. and then everything, you know, falls apart on you. The, the disadvantage to the Pfizer vaccine is that it has to be kept at really deep sub-zero temperatures, right. very cold. Right. And the problem there is that there aren't very many places, at least at this point, that have the kinds of freezers that will keep them at that right. point. At and that this is the temperature, it's like, 90 below negative 90 celsius which is like what 120 or something Fahrenheit, something. negative something crazy it's it's cold right it's a dry ice cold yeah um uh moderna uh, and again the differences are it's the proprietary little fat globules that seem to make the difference so it's the way they made the fat okay. because the rna the mrna in the middle is essentially the same mm -hmm. um the Moderna doesn't have, just has to be kept at, I don't know, about minus four uh, Fahrenheit, I believe it is. So uh, commercial freezers generally should be able to keep that. So that means that it makes it, the transportation and the storage of it uh, much easier. Mm -hmm. And apparently one of the things that they tested was uh, even after it's thawed or kept at refrigeration, regular refrigeration temperatures, not frozen temperatures, it seems to be stable for up to a month even. Wow, and I think I saw Pfizer was stable for up to five days or something. It, it's a right. little more vulnerable. Yeah, it's a, little, it's a little more vulnerable. So that makes, again, distribution and storage a bigger challenge mm -hmm. for both of those. Um, not impossible, but again, remember we're talking about getting it out there uh, to the boondocks in rural areas, mm -hmm. as well as in you know in the in big cities or whatever, so that that makes it challenging. Manufacturing is an issue. These things are not easy to make. 
they're they're you know they're expensive, uh, and then you have to keep them at that temperature, transport them at that temperature. All of these all of these things are are part of the issues of distribution. Now the AstraZeneca is uh, cheaper to make and stable at regular refrigeration temperatures. Uh, so even though it may not turn out to be as effective in terms of uh, protection, if you still get 70%, maybe they'll get more if they can figure out why the half dose is better than, than the full dose. Um, that might make it a much more, uh, a better candidate for distribution in developing countries. So, and when you say cheaper, are we talking, I'm making up numbers just for scale, $1,000 versus $5,000 per dose? Um, I, what, I have no idea what the scale is. And is, I mean, then there's talk that the government's gonna pay for everybody to get vaccinated anyway. Um, well, here, yes. you know, the cost for, uh, you know, Africa, for uh, parts of Asia, uh, for South and parts of South America, you know, the difference is a big deal, is a big deal. Right. Uh, because these are uh, a lot of, it's a global pandemic. Yes. And uh, only if just because we have managed then to say to beat it down in the United States, but there are still hotspots around right. the world, the virus right. does not recognize uh, or respect national boundaries. It, it right. will move as we saw. So there are a lot of questions about whether people will have a choice of what vaccine, you know, so now they've got, if they've got three, and again, I don't know how many people make the chickenpox vaccine. I don't know how that works. So if I go to the grocery store, I can pick poster Kellogg's raisin bran. Um, so is this going to be an individual choice when they go to the doctor? Is it a question for people to ask their doctor about which one, or is it possibly going to be about distribution? And the more shelf stable one will go to the worms. And if I live up in Minnesota, by golly, I can go take Pfizer because they just stick it out on the back deck all winter long. Right, right. Um, those are questions that have uh, that remain to be answered. Mm -hmm. uh, quite frankly, this is this is the this is why I was saying the distribution issues now uh, are going to be uh, hard to work out in in, right. in some ways. You know, you uh, you go to the doctor, you may not get a choice of vanilla, chocolate, or strawberry, uh, you might only get vanilla or you might only get chocolate. Uh, it depends on uh, distribution, how many doses are made, what the individual medical systems, hospitals, doctor's offices can get their hands on. Uh, initially, you're not gonna see it in the doctor's office, I don't, I don't believe. You're gonna see it at, you know, at big medical centers right. that can actually handle it. Um, and and do it you know and do it correctly, so that that part of the district in terms of we didn't I didn't finish up the cost issue, um, that has also not been worked out. Um, AstraZeneca committed way back when to making all of the initial batch of a few hundred million I I, I believe it was at cost. Mm -hmm not making any money. Right. They will eventually. Right. Uh, you know, after that first batch of trying right. to get it, trying, trying to get it out there. Um, it, it, they, they won't be cheap, but I don't think they're in the thousands of dollars uh, range. Yeah, okay. Um, 
I saw, I saw some they haven't gotten to that point. I saw some numbers um, at, in terms of how many doses they'll have. It was interesting, actually. AstraZeneca said that they're projecting by the end of 21 to have 3 billion doses to Pfizer's 1.3 billion, so far fewer, and then Moderna's 1 billion. And I don't know, is that, what's, harder to what's make. driving those numbers? Because it's, why yeah. is it harder to make once they're making it? The fat on the mRNA? You've got to generate, I mean, all, all of these are, people uh, forget how complicated, don't not, not forget, they don't realize how complex the manufacturing process is. In, in the case of AstraZeneca, you have to have, uh, you can get plenty of the chimpanzee virus, but then you have to genetically clip out and, and disable the virus. You have to make the, the chunk of the RNA. You have to get it into the chimp virus and get it to incorporate into its genome. Then you have to test it to make sure that that is, that you've accomplished what you thought you were going to accomplish. And then you have to, and then you can manufacture a lot of it, put it into other cells that make lots of it. But now you've got to then extract all of that, purify it, test it for potency, bottle it, store it, ship it. Likewise with Moderna and Pfizer, you've got to manufacture the little mRNA, which actually these days is surprisingly not that hard. I was going to say, there you have the recipe. Like the, the chimpanzees, you have to keep go gathering more virus from, well, from nature versus mRNA. It's like, you know, once you get that first batch of cookies on the baking line, you know, the well, recipe doesn't go. Then you've, got to, you've got to take each, you know, each little snippet of mRNA and do that micro encapsulation. And again, you've got to purify it. It's got to be done right. in a very specific way. And as far as getting enough monkey virus, you don't have to keep, I keep saying monkey, chimpanzee, chimpanzee. Uh, uh, virus. You don't have to go to chimps. You know, once you've got a stock of that, you can reproduce that in the lab as well. So right now, if somebody was handed all three, is there, it seems like it's too soon to say that they all seem to be pretty good and there's not a significant advantage or disadvantage given the safety profiles thus far and the effective effectiveness numbers so far again AstraZeneca I'm just thinking about the assuming the 90% group is would be if that assuming that's replicatable or extendable um, so that in terms of people's fears of which one should I get they all seem fairly comparable I th it, it looks that way and I think it, uh, initially it's going to be availability what's out there and what can you get what can you get your hands on? Um, and then comes the, the decision of who gets to the front of the line. Right, well, now we're at the ethicist, which, but again, I mean, uh, yes, okay. I won't, we, we're not gonna do ethics today. We're gonna just do facts today. Let okay. me do some of these questions that people have been asking. Okay. Um, some of them were a little off topic, so I'm not gonna, in terms of, all right, so we talked about from Carly. Thank you, Carly, in terms of how we know um, what you're getting. We talked about that. Um, uh, Chuck asked about how long after getting COVID would I have a temperature, but that's a little off topic, Chuck. Although, but these, I will do want to say again, people getting a fever after they took this vaccine, that's not abnormal. And that happens in all sorts of vaccines. So that's, right. again, people that's don't know what they- system responding. To so it. when you get a headline that says people got a fever, you know, where they got, you know, they had a pain afterward. 
it's what happens. It's your body responding to, and it's, it's doing the work. So don't be all alarmed by it. If they're spiking 105 fevers, that's a different thing, but these are mild fevers that people are getting. Correct? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I talked about Kevin who wants to know about if he's immunocompromised. Um, Carol has been doing her homework. Uh, there are two cases of transverse myelitis and you're gonna have to translate that one, Max. Right. The AstraZeneca trial. Um, is that a huge concern? So tra translate transverse myelitis, please. Transverse myelitis is an inflammation of the spinal cord okay. that can be very serious, can lead to paralysis and even death if it gets, if it gets bad enough. Um, there was at one case of, um, I don't know that the company ever come 100% uh, when, when we reported that it was transverse myelitis from some sources, they said, well, that, has, that hasn't been confirmed, which is not an easy thing necessarily to, to confirm. Um, they apparently can concluded the company and it's you know the data data safety monitoring board concluded that it was not related to the vaccine okay uh, it, it's a very serious event but if you're doing 60,000 people some are going to die of a heart attack you know some are going to have a stroke uh, some are going to have transverse myelitis is pretty rare um, the question is not whether they got it it's the question is was it related to right. the vaccine? Right, right. And this again, I remember one of the, um, I forget which one of them had been paused briefly because I think someone had died, but again, that had nothing to do whatsoever with yeah. the yeah. vaccine. And, and again, all of that is very common in these large, large trials. And you have to take a step, uh, take a deep breath, you know, evaluate it and, and you know, figure out as, as, as well as you can where they related. Yeah, and in fact, I think the person that died was in the control was in the placebo group. I, I don't think they even had gotten the vaccine, as I recall. And I don't remember which trial it was. Um, so let's go back to the original question. How how encouraged are you? How, how, good, how good should everybody feel about this? I think at this, I'm much more encouraged than I was, you know, a few months ago when when, right. when, when we first uh, when we first talked. Um, it will, the, the safety profile seems to be pretty good. The effectiveness in the short run seems to be very good. Um, so the question then, so there are two questions uh, that I see that might be uh, obstacles to really making this the answer to, to the pandemic. Uh, one is how long is the immunity good for? Mm -hmm. And we won't know that for for a while. But the other is the uptake. There is so much anti-vaccination, uh, <laughs> I hate to use the word fever, um, out there. And it's Are you been- Are about the political debate of it or just anti-vaxxers in general? Well, there are anti-vaxxers in general were there and then the whole thing became politicized, which kind of added fuel to that particular fire. So now it's interesting. Now you've got anti-vaxxers and some fuel there, but then the, some of those may say, well, yeah, but this is something that, you know, the whole world needs and, and maybe you'll, you'll have people crossing over uh, between different groups, but uptake is a big issue. And there was a, the guy from Yale, uh, from the Yale School of Public Health I interviewed last week, um, they published a paper on all of the issues and obstacles or uh, challenges 
uh, of distribution to the, through public health systems. And uh, he said, what we really need will, will be a, a very big public education effort. We've done the science now. Okay. If people don't take it, you, you, you're not gonna be able, unless you know, there, there will be some, and this was part of a discussion that, that I also had not, not too long ago when I did a webinar is, will some people be able to require employees for example, to get vaccinated. Right. Those, those issues can get a little thorny. They haven't been really well resolved in the courts. Uh, well, if you're gonna be uh, on, uh, in a cancer ward or an HIV uh, treating patients or, right. or whatever, can the hospital say you must be vaccinated? Um, they are, there have been you know, healthcare workers who have refused to get the flu vaccine, for example, right? Uh, that that sort of thing. So um, it, it will be an issue as to because we will need the vast majority of the population to be vaccinated and and be hopefully immune for uh, an extended period of time in order to really be able to beat down the curve and and, and beat the pandemic. What's it say? So what if I'll call it fifty percent? Because again. There's five percent of the population that's getting. I'm, I'm, you know, mixing my I'm extreme numbers here, but I'll call it five percent of the population are getting. Our population are getting ninety-five percent of the sickness. If it's not ninety-five percent, it's ninety-two percent, right? So that there's there's a narrow part in the highest vulnerabilities. Yeah. So no, why no. do I need necessarily to vaccinate? otherwise healthy people who are taking care of themselves, they've got strong immune systems, et cetera, et cetera. And if we get, if you have 50% of the population that gets vaccinated, is that enough for herd immunity? Um, although then it's not running around so that people aren't absorbing the sickness the same way that it, when it's like out in the well, environment. Your 5% or 8% right. is a number of the people who will get sick enough to be hospitalized and, and, and be at risk of dying. Um, uh, and most people who get infected will uh, not be in that, in that category mm -hmm. and will recover from the acute infection. Mm -hmm. The wild card, the joker in that deck is that even people who get sick or get infected and recover may suffer long-term long hauler syndrome as right. it's called right so that yeah i'm over i'm over the, the the acute infection but i'm still i've still got brain fog i still get dizzy um i still develop fevers that spike out of nowhere and then and go down my fatigue is overwhelming that that sort of a thing so that uh, that's one issue the other issue is even some young healthy, apparently normal, whatever, whatever that is, mm -hmm. uh, people who you would think would be just fine, still get sick. So you don't know. Everything. Yeah. So you don't know, you know, who it is. Now, herd immunity varies from the percentage of the population you need to be immune to truly have herd immunity varies with the virus. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard it said uh, the estimate has been for corona 
in the 60, maybe 70% range. Mm -hmm. For measles, it's over 90%. Mm -hmm. Have to be immune, have to be vaccinated in order to really have uh, herd immunity. So um, the 60, 70% number for corona is really kind of an educated guess. That's a guesstimate. Um, we don't really know that because we've never been close to that. And we don't know if that's enough. That's based on, you know, how many people one individual can go ahead and spread to. And, right, and they are not, right. Um, it might be, but right. that's still a big number. You know, if you've got 330 million people in the United States. Right, 180 million or so. Yeah, you're yeah. talking, you know, 200 million plus people who need to be uh, immunized. Right. All right, Max Gomez. A lot of questions, a lot of good news. I really am extremely encouraged. Um, yeah, I, I yeah. really am too. Now, yeah. you know, the challenges now are, are logistics and distribution. And then as you mentioned, ethics, who, yeah. you know, who, who, who gets them first. I'll say one quick thing about that, which is uh, everybody assumes that the first people to get it should be uh, first responders, the people in the hospitals, the nurses, the techs, the doctors and so forth. And, and that's kind of what I would normally expect. I, 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 I did a, uh, a Zoom, um, it was actually a Zoom cocktail hour with a, a good friend who's a big, a nationally known immunologist, also from Yale, different guy right. uh, from Yale. And he said at the Yale medical system, which you know some months ago was completely overrun uh, with cases and things like that. After the initial wave, they said, not their residents, not their doctors, all of the people, the, these first responders have actually not gotten sick. Wow. So we said, maybe they're not the ones who, who really should get, that's probably not gonna fly politically, but, um, uh, but maybe they really aren't as big a risk. The people in what they call congregate housing, mm -hmm. nursing homes, prisons, uh, dormitories, other things of that sort, are probably at much greater risk. But again, those are some of the other thornier issues that uh, really aren't necessarily science, they're uh, societal. Right, well, and then there's the other side of it is who do you force or the, you know do you invite them to the party, but right. then giving people the option of people who wanna get it versus people who are not necessarily as inclined to run on the front of that line. Yeah. Um, and again, I think you made the important point about the politics of it. I mean, we just, it's undermining the, all the conspiracy theories and the we versus they, and because it came from that, stop that people. Like it's just destructive. Like it, it we all really, want the goal of being out of these caves. Absolutely. And, and what's interesting is Arthur Kaplan, who's a bioethicist at, at NYU said, you've got the anti-vaxxers who were in theory against vaccines until there's an effective vaccine that might protect them. And they will go very quickly from being an anti-vaxxer to why is that guy ahead of me in line? <laughs> Always. Yeah. Always. Right. All right. We'll have enough for another uh, discussion soon. We will have you back if you don't mind another day as this unrolls. All right, Max, thank you so very much. All My right. Anyway, if, you, if, people, if you've got any additional questions, you can put them in and I'll see if I can Beg Max to give me an answer to you. Um, he's always so nice. So I'll bet he, I bet he'll do it. Um, anyway, so last thing. Yes. To quote 
was it Tony Fauci? Might have been. Wear a damn mask. All right. Please. That really does make a difference. And it's got no side effects, trust me. And wash your hands. Well, yeah. But it turns out it turns out because it's airborne, the mask is even more important than washing your hands. Okay. You heard it here. All right. Thank you, Max. Thank you, everybody. Thursday, you're off next Thursday, the week after Thanksgiving. Uh, we are going to be talking about the PCR test and questions that you have about the testing and all the and all this testing that's going on. So come back next Thursday. You'll see it promoted in the Facebook and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thanks, Max. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm talking to award-winning medical journalist, Dr. Max Gomez, about what you need to know about the very promising COVID vaccines. Getting information readers can trust from the world's top insiders is core to how our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, helps people do better and feel better. Dr. Gomez is one of thousands of top experts who've appeared in Bottom Line Personal, not just in healthcare, but in all aspects of life, including financial planning, great gift ideas, how to save money on travel, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of our experts' greatest tips of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.